this morning with a bit of audience participation, shall we? Do some Q&A. I'm going to ask a question, and you just blurt out the answer. It's really, really easy stuff, I promise you. Um, first question is, can your car run without gas? No. No. Good. All right, we're one for one. We're doing good. <laughs> um, next question. Oh, yeah. Asterisk there, unless it's electric. Good point. Uh, can a fish live without water? No. I see some of you are like, well, what of this? You're trying to get around the question. Third question. Can flowers and trees and grass and gardens grow without rain? Again, some of you are like, well, greenhouse, you have a water hose, so where does the water come from? Rain. Can you, can you live without oxygen? No. Can you, brother or sister in Christ, can you faithfully and follow, uh, faithfully follow and serve Jesus Christ without the Holy Spirit? Or a more basic question, would you even be a Christian if there were no Holy Spirit? No. No, I think most of you got 100 on the test. Good job. (laughs) For some reason, many of us have often neglected the Holy Spirit in our thinking, our praying, our serving, our worshiping. We sang that song, Glorify Thy Name, earlier, and we might often think, well, yeah, of course we glorify God the Father and Son. We're like, oh, yeah, I guess the Spirit, He's part of the Godhead too. We should sing praises to Him as well. But we don't often think that way or consider that the Spirit is just as much God as the Son and the Father. If we're honest, we don't pray much for help from who Jesus names the Helper. The Holy Spirit saves us by changing our hearts and uniting us to Jesus. And then we often pretty much ignore Him. He gives us life. And then we like live our lives without Him. Now we may do this for a number of reasons. We may do this because we come from a charismatic background where everything is about the Holy Spirit. There are excesses and abuses and confusion and chaos. Or we may do this because we come from a Baptist or a Bible church or a more Reformed church background. We've been indirectly taught that doctrine and knowledge is what really matters in the Christian life. And there's not much mention of the Holy Spirit. I wonder where you fall in this spectrum or somewhere in between. The Apostle Paul stands as a good corrective for wherever we're at on this spectrum because he says, he can say on the one hand, be filled with the Spirit and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And then on the other other hand, he can say, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Set your minds on things that are above. So Paul sees no contradiction between a life lived full of the Spirit and a life lived growing in the knowledge of God. There's no contradiction in in the Apostle Paul's mind on Spirit and knowledge. We need to remember that apart from the Holy Spirit's work, we wouldn't even be saved. Paul says it this way. He says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Romans 8, 9. 
If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Jesus. This brings up a good question, by the way, as I get to going here this morning. You might start asking yourself, do I have the Holy Spirit? Do you have Him? Is there evidence that God lives in your life? Because think about it. A person who has a life without God and a person who has a life with God are going to look very differently, right? Does your life have the Spirit? If it doesn't, you aren't saved. The Holy Spirit is given to everyone. This is the promise of the gospel. Everyone who turns away from their sins puts all of their trust in the gospel. Ephesians 1.13 says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So, the Holy Spirit isn't just for charismatics. The Holy Spirit is for Christians. Without the Holy Spirit, there would be no Christians. So when you believe the gospel, and I don't mean like check off boxes in your mind, like, okay, I don't want to go to hell, so I should show up at church and say I believe this. No, I mean like really embrace the gospel with your whole soul. Put all of your hope in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. When that happens, the Bible says, you don't just get forgiveness of sins and get heaven and get the righteousness of Christ and get peace and joy. You get God Himself. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 says. The Holy Spirit is for Christians. There would be no Christians without Him. And one of the promises of the new covenant, one of the things Jesus died on the cross to purchase for us, according to Ezekiel 36, is, is that all of God's people would have the Holy Spirit. You see, in the Old Testament, the Spirit came and filled certain individuals for certain tasks. Every Christian or every believer didn't have the Spirit. But in the New Covenant, God says every believer will have the Spirit. But there's even more than that. Not only do we get God's Spirit by believing in the Gospel, when God's Spirit comes into the house of our lives, He comes bringing presence with Him. So again, He doesn't just come bringing salvation and grace and forgiveness and righteousness and peace and comfort and joy. He comes bringing presence. He comes with gifts. He has things He's wanting and has giving, uh, given you. The Spirit of God brings gifts from God to the people of God unilaterally. Not just pastors or missionaries or those who, you know, raise their hands in worship. The Spirit of God comes bringing gifts to every child of God. And Jesus purchased this for you. His blood did more than wipe away your sins, though it did that. His blood purchased the presence of God for your life. So we're talking spiritual gifts this morning. And next week, by the way. No surprise here. I decided that this topic was too big for one week. So we're going to do two weeks on it. Um, that seems to be more of a recurring pattern in this topical series on the church. Um, amen. Thank you, Justin. <clears throat> so what we're going to do this 
morning is do a, a short definition of the spiritual gifts and then spend the bulk of our time looking at the individual list, the New Testament passages that list the spiritual gifts and examine each of them individually. Next week, we're going to look more broadly at the gifts and address a few of the common questions that come up about them. I think there's like 165 or something verses about spiritual gifts in the New Testament. There's a lot that God says. There's a lot that I could say. So next week, we're going to get into some of the questions um, that will inevitably come up probably even this morning as I start unpacking the list of gifts. Uh, you'll inevitably have questions. You can go ahead and send them to me for Wednesdays in the Word. I may not answer them because they may come next week on part two of this sermon. So let's start with a basic definition of spiritual gifts. I love Thomas Schreiner's definition. It's really short and sweet. He's a professor of New Testament over at Southern Seminary. Schreiner defines gifts, spiritual gifts, as, quote, gifts of grace granted by the Holy Spirit, which are designed for the edification of the church. Gifts of grace granted by the Holy Spirit, which are designed for the edification of the church. The gifts are... We might summarize it this way. The gifts are from the Spirit and for the church. The gifts are from the Spirit and for the church. A lot more on that next week, by the way. The gifts are from the Spirit, not from you. The gifts are from the Spirit and for the church. Our discussions about spiritual gifts are usually self-focused. We usually start with this question. What are my gifts? I wonder what my gifts are. Where's a place where I can use my gifts? But we're going to start in Romans 12, so go ahead and find Romans 12. It's page 891 in your pew Bibles. Find Romans 12, and what I love about this passage is Paul begins his discussion about the gifts by reminding us the gifts aren't about you. That the gifts aren't about you at all. Um, They're not about us or even for us, ultimately. So Romans 12, let's look at the kind of introductory verses before we get to the list of gifts in verse 6. In verse 3 through 5, Paul says this, Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith, that God has assigned. For, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So yes, each one of us is unique and uniquely gifted. Verse 5, we all are one body, but we're individually members one of another. Excuse me, verse, verse 4. As in one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function. So no member has the same exact function. Every member is different. But there's also an overlap. This is verse 5. We belong to one another. Though many, we are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So this is this interesting. Verse 4, we don't have the same function, 
Verse 5, we're members one of another. You're not the same, you're together. Not the same, together. You don't have the same function, but you don't have the same function together. You see where Paul is going with this? He's saying that there's an interdependence in the church, whereas we often don't think of um, interdependence as maturity and growth and health. We often think of independence in our culture. Independence is the mature thing to attain. We want to get out of the house and get on our feet. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, by the way. Like, you shouldn't live with your mom forever. But we often assume that independence equals maturity. But here in the Bible, interdependence is the goal. Paul sees interdependence as the goal. He says we need to stop thinking of ourselves and Start thinking with soberness. That's verse 3. We're not independent agents in need of no one. This is just kind of, I hope, forming the baseline of discussion before, before we get into the gifts themselves. No one is an independent agent. The gifts exist because you need the gifts. You need the gifts. Not yours necessarily. Someone else's. Yes, you have your own function in the body. But your members one of another. Your members one of another. You don't do this thing on your own. Your members one of another. It's a quick example before we get into the list of verses six through eight. Just think of some of how some of the gifts actually function. Maybe this will bring um, some clarity to what I'm trying to say. One person's generosity. If you have the gift of generosity, well, that person's generosity needs another person's administration. Another person's mercy needs the first person's generosity. So Paul's point is that we must unleash our gifts together. The idea is not that you're doing your thing and I'm doing my thing and you're doing your gift and I'm doing my gift. No, we all have different functions, but we're all doing this stuff together for one another. We're unleashing our gifts individually for the sake of the whole. There'll be a lot more on that next week, I think. Let's get into the list, the first list here in verses 6 through 8. Again, Romans 12, verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The first one he mentions is prophecy there in verse 6. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. There's a lot of debate about what prophecy is or isn't. Whether or not it's still available to the church today. I'm going to purposefully sidestep that larger question. The question of whether this gift and the gift of tongues, the gift of miracles, and even healings are available today because that would take us into a discussion, frankly, that we don't have time for. And because I'm in the process of coming to my own convictions and settling in my own mind what I think on this issue. There are two camps, broadly speaking, cessationists believe that these miraculous gifts have ceased and continuationists that believe that these miraculous gifts are continuing. They're still available in the church. I've done a lot of reading even this week on this subject, and I will just say by way of 
where I might be headed. The arguments for cessationism aren't very strong, in my humble opinion. I might be wrong about that. And here's the thing. Whatever your position is, you might be wrong. People who love Jesus and love the Bible and who are way smarter than we are and know the Bible way better than we do have disagreed about this and do disagree about this. This is a third, this is why this must be a third order issue. First order issues, things you have to believe to be a Christian. Second order, things that characterize a church, like believers' baptism, church government, etc. Third order issues, things that we can have friendly disagreement upon while still being in loving fellowship in the same church together. That's where this issue falls. So we, as brothers and sisters in the same local church, can disagree about this issue while remaining in fellowship with one another. So, back to prophecy. What was prophecy at least understood to be in the New Testament church? Simply put, prophecy, or those who prophesied, communicated revelations from God. They communicated revelations from God. A prophecy was a spontaneous revelation from God meant to build up, encourage, or console the people of God. Leave your finger in Romans 12 and turn over to 1 Corinthians 14. We'll be here quite a bit with prophecy. I'm going to spend more time on prophecy than any of the other gifts, by the way. It's one of the two gifts listed in all four of the lists. So it bears our close attention. 1 Corinthians 14.3 On the one hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So that's that's what the gift is for. Upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. 1 Corinthians 14.6 Paul says, If I come to you speaking in other tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? You see, what he's doing there is he's putting revelation and prophecy parallel to one another and knowledge and teaching parallel to one another. In other words, he's using the word revelation as another word for prophecy. This becomes even more clear in verse 26. Verse 26, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Verse 30, if a a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Verse 29 and verse 31 are talking about prophecy. So when he uses the word revelation, he's referring to prophecy. So the gift of prophecy is when God communicates, or we might say reveals, something directly to the mind of the person with the gift of prophecy. And through that person, though they might not share it immediately, it will be spontaneous. The communication is spontaneous, even if the communication is not. There's a reception of a message, and then at least eventually a reporting of the message. Now, Paul puts some guards around this gift. He says this reporting of the revelation must be regulated and evaluated by the church. Look at chapter 14. We're still in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of 
peace. So there must be order in the way this gift is used, if indeed it is still to be used in the church. And more importantly, prophecies must come under the authority of the apostles' teaching. This is same chapter, verse 37. 1437, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. The I there is Paul. He's saying something very simple and very profound. If you think you're a prophet and spiritual and you've got all these words from the Lord, but you don't come under my authority, you're not to be recognized. I don't care about your gift. I don't care about your, your, your prophecies. If you don't come under the commands of the Lord, the apostolic authority of Paul and the other writers of the New Testament, then you are not to be recognized. Prophetic revelation must submit to apostolic teaching. We call that the New Testament. God's word always trumps a prophet's word. Over in 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21, Paul says, Do not despise prophecies. Test everything and hold fast to that which is good. Don't despise these things. Test them. Why? Because they're not infallible. This is one of the arguments that cessationists make that I'm not convinced by. They think that prophecy means that the word from the Lord is infallible revelation from God. But according to these texts, I just can't see how Paul means that. They're supposed to be tested. There's regulators. There's guards around them. There's apostolic authority over them. They're not infallible. Therefore, there must be some regulations. Theologian Christopher Green's words on this point are worth quoting at length. He says, quote, The test of a prophecy is not the accuracy of the prediction, but the orthodoxy of the teaching. The primary rule of weighing any claimed prophecy will be to check its doctrine. Sound, please listen to this. So many of you, I fear, have been led astray because of this. Sounding biblical is not enough. Sounding biblical is not enough because thousands of false prophets have fooled churches in that way. He goes on to say, the prophecy must sit under Scripture, cannot correct, supplement, or in any way reorder Scripture's teaching. This is difficult, he says, in practice, because we tend to get more excited when someone says, I have a word from the Lord, than when someone says, please turn to Romans 6. But the Bible is God's guaranteed authoritative word containing His binding promises and warnings. Perhaps one reason we are easily fooled by exciting but false prophets is that we are not truly thrilled by God's Word. End quote. Is that you? Are you thrilled by the Word of God? When we sing, speak, O Lord, we're not asking for prophets to stand up and speak. We're asking for God to speak. We're asking for His Word to be made clear. Because apostolic teaching always trumps prophetic revelation. Again, I'm doing my best not to argue for or against the availability of this gift to the church today. But what I am saying is that if it is available, this is how it should be done. 
You've probably had the experience that I've had where someone comes up to you and says, I got a word from the Lord. And somebody you don't even know, this happened to me at Lifeway Christian Bookstore, and she just went for it. And it was not incredibly helpful, or true, or accurate, or biblical. If prophecy is available, there's a way in which it should work in the church. Scripture is more important than any word from the Lord because Scripture is infallibly the Lord's word. Are you thrilled by this book, brothers and sisters? Does it thrill you that God actually has talked to you? Literally, the God who created the universe has spoken. He's not silent. And so many of our friends are just longing for some other thing to come in and supplement. So this is prophecy. I promise the rest of the gift will go a lot faster than this. Let's do the next one back over in Romans 12. So back to Romans 12, verse 7. Prophecy, verse 6, and then verse 7. If service in our serving. The gift of service. This is probably the same gift as the gift of helping in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Deacons and deaconesses should have this gift. As the word for service is literally diakonia. But it isn't limited to deacons. This gift is one of the most important and crucial gifts in the church because without it, countless behind-the-scenes kinds of things wouldn't get done. Those with this gift, here's how you know if you have this gift. Those with this gift see a need and just do it happily. Just do it. But just fulfill it. They don't wait for somebody. They don't say, hey, pastor, you know, I noticed that the trash wasn't taken out. (laughs) No, they just see a need and they just do it joyfully. Happily. They, they, they see a need in the nursery or the sound room or with greeters and they just volunteer. They see a member who needs a ride to church and they offer it. They see a brother or sister who needs some food and they just bring it. This gift doesn't mean that those who don't have it can refuse to serve. <laughs> you can't be like, well, I'm not serving in the nursery. You know, I don't have the gift of service after all. Well that's, well, that's something. I won't say what I'm thinking. You know, I just can't do much in the church because I'm so busy. I just don't have time to serve. Oh, well, service is, I would argue, what it means to be a Christian. In Jesus' kingdom, none of us are ever more than servants. There's only one king in his kingdom, and everyone else Serves him. Gift notwithstanding. So this is serving. The next gift Paul mentions is teaching. Teaching, verse 7. The one who teaches in his teaching along with prophecy. This is the only gift mentioned in all the gift lists. Many scholars view over in 1 Corinthians 12, 8, the gifts of utterance of wisdom and utterance of knowledge as the same gift as teaching. It might, your translation might say word of wisdom or word of knowledge. Either way, it seems to parallel to the gift of teaching. This gift of teaching is the ability to explain the Word of God to the people of God in ways that are helpful. A number of us can probably explain the Bible, but sometimes you're like, that wasn't helpful. I think what you're saying is right, 
but it wasn't helpful. It didn't help me understand. Teaching is the ability to explain the Word of God to the people of God in ways that are helpful. Unlike prophecy, it's a gift that explains truth that's already been revealed. And by the way, all elders should have this gift to some extent because all elders are required to be able to teach. The existence of this gift teaches us something very basic about the Christian life. Think of this. Um, there's a gift of teaching. It's in all the lists. It's predominantly located in many of the lists. This means that we all need to be taught. None of us ever mature beyond the point of needing to be taught. Even the paid teachers of the church should be lifelong students. It may come to a surprise to many of you that I spend the bulk of my week in class. I don't know much of anything intuitively. True story. So I have to give myself to learn from others, to read the Bible, wrestle with the Bible, listen to teachers who are teaching me to understand the Bible. So I spend most of my week learning so that I can teach the Bible to you. We are all needing to be taught. This also means that when we're getting ready to come to church, We need to come ready to worship and pray and sing and fellowship, but we also need to come expecting to be taught. The person who thinks they know everything can't learn anything. And it means that if if everyone needs to be taught and we're being taught in the church, then we need to take what we've been given and give it to others. Not in a sermon or even a Bible study class or whatever. But don't think that you're taught just for your benefit. Jesus calls us to make disciples, right? To help other people follow along. So one of the best ways to make good use of this time right now, like these 40, 50 minutes, is to be taking notes. This is not a rule in the churches. This is not a command of the apostles. But take notes so that you don't forget 97% of what I'm saying to you. And then you can take it and give it to others. All of us, we're, you know, we're, we're all needing to take what we've learned and give it to someone. Many of us are either taking that baton and trying to faithfully pass it on. A lot of us don't even reach for the baton. Or we're fumbling it. Or we take it and we just throw it aside and keep living our lives. But if you're taught something, it's for you and for others. I think it's Colossians 3 where it says, teach one another. So there's a way in which we all teach one another. God sends teachers into our lives so that we can teach others. Now the next gift that Paul mentions here in Romans 12 verse 8 is exhortation. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. This is the gift of urging others to obey the word of God. I think I just did this, by the way. I think that's what I just did when I challenged you to take what you've, and I didn't plan to do that, by the way, challenge you to take what you've been taught and give it to others. I'm exhorting you to do something with the Word of God. Don't just sit on it and don't let it just end with you. Do something with it. This is exhortation. It's related to teaching. Most preachers should have both these gifts because the Word of God needs to be explained and applied. But it's not limited to teachers. Anytime you're meeting with another brother or sister in Christ, you exhort them, you challenge them to obey the Word of God, 
to remember the word of God you're exhorting. Some of you are especially good at that. Some of you probably aren't, and it comes as a struggle. It's a gift, the gift of exhortation. Next, the next gift Paul mentions is contribution or giving, verse 8. To the one who contributes in generosity. So we saw a few weeks ago, all Christians are called to give generously of their material resources, but some of you will be compelled to do so in unique and unusual ways. And knowing many of you really well, I, it's, I can see these gifts in our church, and it's so beautiful. So beautiful. This gift, by the way, this gift of contribution or giving, it isn't reserved for rich people. You can't think, oh, well, I'm a poor college student, don't have that gift. No, it's not how it works. The Spirit doesn't look at your income level and be like, okay, I can work with this one. Look at all the money they have. No, 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 no. My parents, my, excuse me, my grandparents lived on Social Security, and I'm convinced they had this gift because they lived generous, open-handed lives, happily, joyfully. So encouraging, so encouraging. Any Christian at any income level can have this gift, and I know some of you do. Leadership. The next gift Paul mentions is leadership there in verse 8. The one who leads with zeal. Many scholars see this gift as synonymous with the gift of administrating over in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. This gift enables some in the church to give direction in the church, give direction to members of the church. It gives the ability to see clearly where to go and what to, what to do. This gift brings clarity and order to complicated situations. It's the gift of being able to see something that looks like a big mess and being able to make sense of it and see a way forward. And lovingly, gently persuade other people in that direction. It's a gift. Elders and deacons likely have this gift to one degree or another. The gift of leadership. Next, verse 8, mercy. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Mercy. I love this gift. I don't know that I have this gift, but I've benefited from this gift so much, and I know many of you have as well. This is the special ability to help those who are hurting. The special ability to help those who are hurting. We're all called to weep with those who weep. Look down at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This is for all Christians. But some Christians will have a special knack for comforting and bringing relief to those who are afflicted and hurting. These are the unsung heroes in the church. You see, if you have a teaching gift, you get a microphone and a pulpit and a class to teach, and people know who you are. But if you visit the sick, if you call shut-ins, you check in on members who are going through a really difficult time, if you help someone battle an addiction, no one ever knows. Of course, God knows. That's why I say these are the unsung heroes of the church. These are the ones doing the hard work of love, of meeting those face-to-face who have tremendous need. Now, there's a way in which we're all called to do this kind of work, but some are especially gifted for this work. I was going to embarrass her. I don't see Linda Houston here this 
morning. She, she has this gift, I think. When I first started here, she would go with me as we visited homebound members of our church, people I didn't know, people she knew well. And I just literally sat there. Not only was I a young pastor, didn't know anything, but I would just sit there amazed. Like She just loved them, just loved them, just talked to them, just comforted them, just encouraged them. It wasn't awkward. It was so genuine. It was so kind. It was so full of the Spirit. I wonder, do you have the gift of mercy? It's really hard work because hurting people often need long-term and frequent help. And when that person no longer needs mercy, there's someone else who does need mercy. And this can grind us down and wear us out and make us upset that there aren't more people helping out, that more people aren't doing mercy. Cool thing is that Paul understood this, and so at the end of the verse he says, if you have the act, uh, the gift of mercy, the one who does acts of mercy, do it with cheerfulness. Do it with cheerfulness. Do it with cheerfulness. Anyone wanting to go into counseling ministry or pastoral ministry should have this gift in some measure. So think about that as you consider the direction of your life. Now let's go over to 1 Corinthians 12 and look at another list of the gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 through 11. That's page 902 in your pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. If you got it, say Holy Spirit. Great. Felt like a charismatic preacher there for a minute. Here we go. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. We've already covered the gifts in verse 8, arguing that those are the same as teaching. But let's look at the gift of faith in verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit. This isn't the same as saving faith because all believers have that. If you're a Christian, you have faith by definition. This is an extraordinary faith and trust in God for the future. This may be the faith that can remove mountains that Paul alludes to in chapter 13, verse 2. It may be the prayer of faith that the elders um, are called upon to pray over the sick in James 5.15. George Mueller of Bristol likely had this gift as he never asked for money. He had the largest orphanage in England and he never once asked for money, trusting that God would just provide everything his orphans needed. And God always did. Probably had the gift of faith. I think my wife has this gift. I've told her jokingly, not even thinking about these Bible verses, that she has a trust that is so profound and unshakable and deep, and I'm just freaking out all the time. It's a gift. This is an incredible gift of trusting God for the future in extraordinary ways. The next gift Paul mentions here, verse 9, is the gift of healing. This is the ability to bring physical healing and comfort to those who are sick. 
Healing has its foundation in the atoning work of Christ. It's carried out in Jesus' name through the power of the Spirit and must be appropriated by faith. The full and complete healing that we long for won't come until Christ returns, but through the gift of healing, God granted and may still grant a foretaste of life in the age to come. I just had someone this week tell me they had an ailment, and they're like, but I'm not worried about it. Somebody laid their hands on me. They, they prayed that thing out of me, so I'm going to be fine. And I just gently said, maybe. <laughs> maybe. There's no guarantee that just because someone prays that it will happen. There is a guarantee that full healing, that's what I was encouraging them with, there's full healing that will come. Christ died to purchase our complete healing in the kingdom of God. And we will get it. We will get it. We may not get it here and now, but we will get it. Those who have this gift aren't faith healers who stir up the hopes of the sick, telling them to claim their healing and steal a bunch of money from people watching their programs on television. Rather, they use their gift, usually in more discreet ways, to bless the church and point people to Jesus. This is the gift of healing. The next gift Paul mentions is the gift of miracles. Verse 10, some theologians conflate these two things, but it's two different words. Healings and miracles are two words here. The word for miracles can also be translated as powers, so it seems to have a broader application than just physical healings. It could be any demonstration of the power of God upon a specific situation. In the book of Acts, there were resurrections, the exorcism of demons, judgment against opponents of the gospel, and rescue from impending disaster. Miracles always occurred when there was a need for divine intervention. Miracle by default means that we can't make something happen, that God has to. They were performed out of a heart of compassion for those who were affected. They weren't magic or exhibitionism or programmed. They were displays of God's power. And we may believe that miracles still happen today. Even a cessationist believes that this is a gift where someone is able to, through the Spirit's gifting, do this work in certain situations. So this is not miracles broadly defined, but miracles more specifically as a gift to specific people. I'm tempted to say, I'll go ahead and say it. Many of us in the West, we just kind of discount miracles because we're so enlightened. (laughs) Or we just don't think about it enough. You know, we, we get sick and so we immediately call the doctor instead of immediately pray. I think we should do both, by the way. Call your doctor and pray. Maybe pray first then call your doctor. I don't know. But here's what uh, I will say. There's, there's a scholar, Craig Keener, who wrote two volumes, like 2,000 pages on miracle accounts, documented miracle accounts across the globe. Across the globe. His argument is simple. Miracles are still happening in the church across the globe. And he's not some dude writing a blog. He's done his homework. It's heavily documented you like footnotes you'll like this book my point is even if miracles isn't a gift they're still happening all over god's church and all over god's globe we should think that way we should pray that way amen 
Distinguishing of spirits. The next gift Paul mentions, the ability distinguish, to distinguish between spirits. Verse 10, this is the ability to discern between a true spirit and a false spirit. This may have been what Paul, excuse me, what allowed Paul to know that the slave girl in Acts 16 was praising them because of an evil spirit. Remember the story in Acts 16? This, this girl's like, these people are from God, listen to them. And Paul's like, whoa, a second, that may be right, but she's got a demon in her. And he rebukes that spirit. He discerns that what she's saying, even if it's true, is driven by something that's false. So this gift provides the ability to discern the work of the Holy Spirit and demonic spirits. The next gift Paul mentions is various kinds of tongues. Theologian Greg Allison gives a great definition for this. I'm going to read it in its entirety. Pay careful attention to this. He says, The spirit, the tongues, is the spirit's endowment and empowerment of personal acts of communicating and coded speech that rehearse the mighty acts of God, utters mysteries directed toward God that are not cognitively understandable, and or expresses prayers that derive from one's spirit but bypass one's mind. And he gives examples of each of these in Acts and 1 Corinthians. In Acts, there are instances of the apostles speaking in human languages other than their own. The one you, of course, know is Pentecost, when the Spirit comes down and the apostles start preaching in other languages. And everyone there from all over the world starts understanding the mighty acts of God through their own languages, even though the apostles didn't know those languages. Here, over here in 1 Corinthians, the tongue-speaking is what's usually called ecstatic utterances. Ecstatic utterances. It's a personal act of communication with God that no one understood, including the speaker. So, chapter 14, verse 2, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Verse 9, So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. So because this gift was personal, not corporate, it it had very limited use in the church. The person speaking in the tongue could be edified, but the congregation wouldn't, unless a corresponding gift that Paul mentions back in chapter 12, verse 10, was also present. So the next gift is the interpretation of tongues. The interpretation of tongues. This gift made the unintelligible speech of a tongue speaker intelligible in a public gathering of the church. This is why Paul forbid tongue speaking without this accompanying gift. Chapter 14, verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. If you've been in charismatic church, I know I've been in the Pentecostal churches and there have been tongue speaking. This is not the way it was done. I don't think I've ever, in fact, I've never seen it done this way. You may, maybe you have. I'm not saying it's always done badly, but my experience anecdotally is that this is not the way it's done. There must be interpret, uh, interpretation of tongues if there's going to be tongues publicly. 
Now, interestingly, back in chapter 14, verse 5, Paul says that this gift of tongue speaking is just as valuable to the church as prophetic messages when interpretation is available. Chapter 14, verse 5, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Paul isn't saying that they have the same function. Prophecy is speech from God directed to others. Tongues is speech from God directed to God. But he does say if there's interpretation, there's equal value here in building up the church. Chapter 12, verse 28, the third list of spiritual gifts. Look at chapter 12, verse 28. We've already covered most of these, but I want to bring it to your attention. Anyways, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. The only gift we haven't covered is apostleship. This gift was uniquely given to the twelve and to a few others, such as Paul and James, the half-brother of Jesus. It was given to those who saw the risen Jesus and were commissioned directly by Him to be His authorized representative. They were foundation. They were the foundation of the church, exercising unique and irreplaceable authority in the churches then and now as the New Testament was written by them and under their auspices. In other words, apostles, I think, don't exist anymore. There aren't apostles anymore in this sense. So if the if any of the gifts have ceased, I would say this is the one, for sure. Now last, let's do one last passage, Ephesians 4. Flip over to Ephesians 4. <clears throat> this is the last gift list. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. The context is, Paul's describing Jesus' ascension. He's on high. He's risen and reigning over the entire universe. He has all authority. Verse 11, And from that position, He gave the apostles, the, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. We've covered all of these except evangelists. Who were these guys? Well, they were most likely itinerant preachers, men who traveled from place to place preaching the gospel. Someone can tell the gospel without traveling, of course. But the word used here usually involves the element of traveling, of going to another place to proclaim the gospel. So all Christians should be sharing the gospel because all Christians are called to be ambassadors for Christ. But there were some, and I think still are some, with unique abilities to share the gospel and unique opportunities to travel to that end. And they will generally experience unusual fruit in seeing people come to Christ. This is, not, this is not an excuse to, to say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelists, so, you know, I'm just not going to be sharing the gospel. Well, that's, again, like saying you don't have the gift of service, so you're not going to serve. That's crazy. No, we're all called to be ambassadors for Christ. Some will be especially gifted to travel and preach and share and train others in that work as well. Local churches should discern whether church planters and missionaries have this gift before they're sent out. In other words, we as a church shouldn't just send anyone 
overseas to do international cross-cultural church planting work. They should have particular gifts for that work. A desire to do it is not enough. So that's the conclusion of the gifts. I want to, the list of the gifts. I want to draw your attention, though, over to 1 Peter. So please find 1 Peter 4, the passage that Janine read for us just a little while ago. 1 Peter 4 helps us get our bearings a little bit on the gifts. Many will divide the gifts into speaking gifts and serving gifts. I think this is a helpful category because it's here in the Bible and it's helpful. But 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now this is not a perfect division of the gifts. Obviously, those who speak will be serving and those who serve will be speaking. But in general terms, there are those who speak and those who serve. Speaking gifts are apostleship, prophecy, teaching, evangelism, exhortation, discerning spirits, speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues. The gifts of service are leadership, helps, mercy, giving, faith, healing, and miracles. You can have some of each, but I think this is helpful for us to think about. Generally, this is not biblical Truth, but I think generally we might lean towards one or the other. Are your gifts serving gifts or speaking gifts? And of course, those who speak are serving, those who serve are speaking. But this is helpful in us as we think about our gifts. So let's just think about this. Church, do you know what your gifts are? Do you know what your gifts are? Gift, if you think there's only one, we'll talk about that more next week. Do you know what your gift or gifts are? And are you using them? Are you using them or sitting on them? Do you know what your gifts are? You're like, John, it's just enough for me to be here on Sunday. Amen. I feel you. But guess what? Do you have the Spirit of God? You have gifts. Like the church needs you. You're supposed to be using them. 1 Peter 4.10, Romans 12.6. As we have gifts, let us Use them. Let us use them. God is so creative. Think about this. He didn't just create a church that's bland and uniform and homogeneous and everyone's just the same and does everything just the same. No, we're all gifted differently and uniquely to reveal the beauty and creativity of Almighty God. And God knows. He's infinitely wise and He knows that His church has an array of needs. So in his wisdom, he gives his church various gifts to meet all of those needs. There should never be a need in the church that goes unmet. Why? Because of gifts. You're like, John, we're not a very big church, so we don't have probably that many gifts. We have enough gifts to meet the needs of this church. I believe that. I wonder if you believe that. And he gives us gifts out of his grace. Jesus is the king of, king of the universe. So he's free to do whatever he wants, free to give to whatever, whoever he wants, whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Jesus is king. He's not bound by anything. He owes no one anything. He doesn't owe you saving grace or gifts of grace. 
So, some of us this morning need to repent of the prideful assumption that we deserve what we have. We deserve our deacon ministry. We deserve to be an elder. We deserve to teach. We deserve this. We deserve that. No, we don't deserve anything. We don't earn it. We haven't worked for it. Jesus gave it to us. And we might need to repent of our prideful and wasteful neglect of the gifts that Almighty God has given us. Jesus is a sovereign King, but He's also a good and gracious King. He gives us grace for when we haven't used our gifts as we should. He gives us grace to discover our gifts. More on that next week. He loves to give good gifts to His children just as parents love to give good gifts to their children. Can I tell you a quick random story and we'll be done. Yesterday, Susie's going to laugh at this, we have this old blower that my mom gave me and we don't need it but I was like you know this little Gideon will love this thing my son Gideon loves yard work it's amazing I hope it never changes so we got this brought it home that's probably going to change brought it home he he's doing it yesterday he's just you know it's not really helpful but he's having fun and so we we're cleaning out the garage yesterday and I'm like you know what Susie let's get rid of this thing we're trying to get rid of as much stuff as we can it's a pain it's electric it's loud Gideon's not going to use it that much. And so I put it, over in the, <laughs> I put it over in the trash pile. And then on the way to church this morning, I'm like, God loves to give good gifts to his children. Get that blower out of the trash pile, right? So I hope it's not gone when we get home today. I want my son to be happy more than I want my garage to be neat. Right? God gives you good gifts. I don't know what you have. And you might not know what you have, but it's a good gift. It's not for you. It's for us. He's not a hoarder of grace. He's not a miser, cheapskate, or scrooge. He gives generously out of, wealth, out of the wealth of His grace. He gives saving grace. He gives gifts of grace. Do you know what your gifts are? And are you using them? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know, you know of our prideful boasting in our gifts and you know of our prideful neglect. So, Father, please have mercy on us. Forgive us where we err here. And many of us probably just have maybe a neutral ignorance. We just don't know. We've never thought about this subject. We've never read this part of the Bible. And we don't know what our gifts are. So, Father, we pray in mercy and in your grace, by your Spirit, would you help our members to know what gifts they have and to use them zealously, passionately, cheerfully, even when no one's watching, not for their applaud and praise, but um, for your glory and for the good of this church. We pray that we would be a spiritually healthy and vibrant and growing church. Use our gifts, Father, we pray, to build up your people here. In Jesus' name, amen.